Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is a longtime friend. Margaret and I, we know each other now, I don't know, five, six, seven years, Margaret, by now? That sounds right. And uh, with us today is Margaret Malloy. Margaret is the global chief marketing officer of one of the great shops, Siegel and Gale. She's been there a long time now, over 10 years. Uh, she also leads the marketing society here in America and North America. Is it just the U.S. or North America? The U.S., I was the inaugural chair. I'm now a board member. A board member. Okay. Uh, but have led for many, many years now. Uh, doing a magnificent job. And we love Sophie and the Marketing Society and the global team. And we are thrilled to finally correct a historic wrong and have you here with us on Great Minds. So welcome, Margaret. Thank you, Matt. It's truly a treat and looking forward to a fun, informal chat. All right, let's have some fun. So, Margaret, we share um, something in our backgrounds both of us began as interns and i uh, have very fond memories of the interns that i did back when i went to uh, university in atlanta at emory i worked for the atlanta chamber of commerce and then the atlanta journal constitution and i see going back for you close to 30 years we won't date either one of us uh that you interned uh in something that was a little unique and special going back to your native land and marketing uh at enterprise ireland so i'd love to go back to that part of your career and draw on those early experiences uh, representing the irish government at trade shows and um looking at u.s market in particular but for me i know i honed a lot of my skills whatever i may possess going back to those early internships. So I thought that might be a nice place for us to start here. Well, that's certainly a question I haven't been asked in a very long time. And I really appreciate it because I think we are a product of our formative experiences. I had the good fortune to be selected by Enterprise Ireland to be an intern in the New York office. And funnily enough, Enterprise Ireland is not too dissimilar to your starting point. At the time, it was essentially the Department of Commerce, or if you will, the business wing of the Irish government in every country around the world. And the premise of the organization was to promote Irish trade and services uh, overseas. And, oh my gosh, I got recruited to come to the United States which was a very plum assignment because everyone in Ireland at those days wanted to go to America. I had never been to America. I had only been on an airplane once prior. So the wisdom on their part to select me is extraordinary because when I got off that airplane, Matt, in JFK, going up in a farm in Ireland, I knew it was the place for me. The energy, the sense of possibility, everything um, spoke to me. And the job was truly remarkable as well. Essentially, as I said, I went from trade show to trade show or doing research before we had the internet around distributors to promote Irish goods and services in the US. And what was remarkable about it wasn't necessarily the function or the content of the job, although that was a lot of fun. It was, it fomented in me the recognition that I'm very mission driven and I could get behind that mission, promoting 
products and services produced by my fellow countrymen. I had a very visceral uh, belief in the offering. And I think that desire to always be at an organization that has a mission that I can sign up for, that is one thing that has stayed with me throughout my career. Long after the tools that we use changed, that desire to always be an ambassador, which is another component of working for a government organization. You are an ambassador and you recognize the gravity that comes with that responsibility. You're representing the brand. And in my case, the country of Ireland. And I felt a very heavy weight on that in terms of responsibility. And funny enough, now and years later in commercial organizations, I still feel that when I wear my badge, I'm representing my colleagues, the organization. And that's important to me to be in character and to do that in a very authentic way. So you grew up in a rural environment. Uh, and in all the years I've known you, you know, that attribute of passion is one that really resonates and shines through. Many of us are passionate people, but passion for business and for a mission and really, really getting behind something that typically goes back to our earlier years, even before we were working. Take us back to that rural era, uh, young Margaret, if you will. Where do you think that business passion came from? From your parents? Did you work as a young lady growing up uh, on the farm uh, in that community? T take us back a little further. Certainly. So I grew up the eldest of six children, very modestly. And I think I had the good fortune to grow up in an era where we had access to education. My parents did not have that opportunity. They did not have the opportunity to complete high school. So I recognized first and foremost, from a work standpoint, job one was academic work. And I really leaned into that because I recognized that education was my pathway. And I developed the capacity I had there to be a good student. And that component of work has stayed with me too. The nature around asking questions, being curious, studying deeply, um, and the confidence in myself that if I put in the work, I can get the outcomes. Another component of growing up in that environment, you touched on community. In an agrarian environment, certainly in Ireland in those days, community was critical. People saved the crops together. People supported each other in every way that's possible in a small community. And while I live today in New York City, that value of building community, much like you do with um, your programming and all that you've built, community is at the heart of my work. It's never an individual effort. It's the recognition that you have talent and you have to pull your weight, which is very core to that culture, but also it's in the service of a greater ideal of building community. And there's the recognition that we're in this all together. And those philosophies, I think, you bring with you as part of the DNA. I saw my parents work very hard for very little economic reward. And that gives you also, Matt, a sense of appreciation, arguably the antithesis of entitlement, because you realize I have to earn everything that I get and if you bring that with you, I think it's very healthy. And 
I suppose then the nature you began with my leaving Ireland very early. I think the type of individual that self-selects to come to New York City has a certain ambition, has a certain confidence, and most of all, a certain curiosity and work ethic. And um, hopefully I bring those to my work and hopefully I bring that community spirit to every organization that I engage with. Well, you you certainly do. And what you also bring that I think is an underrated characteristic of New Yorkers is a lot of heart. And I love what you did uh, working uh, for uh, Project Renewal way mm. back when, trying to combat a problem that is still with us, arguably uh, worse than ever, which is the homeless problem. Uh, yes. Talk about that work that you did for Project Renewal. So that was, again, an internship during my uh, business school career. In, and most of my colleagues went to work for consultancies and banks. And that was a very predictable path. I decided since I had that summer to do social enterprise. And I was invited to join Project Renewal to bring that sort of MBA training and perspective to how they approach the problem of supporting uh, their clients who are typically substance abuse um, people or folks who were struggling with various um, mental health issues or at a period in their lives where they were without shelter. And what I appreciated about that opportunity was I learned so much. I hope I brought something, but really I learned so much. Most of all, I think I learned how fortunate we are in not being in those circumstances. But also the reality is that we're all but a small move ways from having that circumstance. So I also learned that there are a lot of systems problems. A lot of these issues, uh, be it the government or others, are not really addressing the core issue of providing appropriate employment vehicles that use the talents of different people, of people of different lived experiences and different backgrounds. And I appreciated so much the work Project Renewal was doing around creating aquaculture and work where these individuals could earn a living, have the dignity that a job gives you and still develop skills and be proud. Pride is so important to be proud of their contributions. And although those measures were not on the same financial scale, as perhaps many of our peers are, to those individuals, it gave them dignity. And it's really very visceral to me, the power of work to give someone dignity. Yeah, we're going to go through a side door here for a minute. But, you know, that was 25 years ago when you were at Project Renewal. And uh, the problem today is arguably even worse. You know, mm -hmm. the proliferation of the street drugs my wife and I were in San Francisco, and normally we would stay in and around Union Square. And all my friends said, you can't stay there now. You know, it's just no, the retail, so much is closed. And, you know, we were always right near that Tenderloin district, which has always been a little dicey. Uh, but we ended up driving through the Mission District on our way to another part of town. And that drug, Trank, is, I guess, the street name for it which turns people effectively into zombies and is everywhere. And I just read some horrifying story about 
it's become a phenomenon on social media for people to take photos of people, homeless people on that drug and post them as for their own entertainment. Um, and it certainly seems that for a nation that possesses such extraordinary wealth, that we should be able to do a little bit better. And uh, arguably, we're, you know, doing the opposite of better. Yeah, I think that's a valid observation. Certainly, I'm no expert in that field. But just as a fellow human, there's something terribly wrong about that. And also, it's a sad representation of how social media can be used for ill. Yeah, as well. so these are unfortunate yeah. circumstances. But I'm glad that you bring these stories to the forefront, because it's so easy for us to ignore people and to get in the busyness that our day jobs requires for us not to just take a moment and pause. And I live in New York City. I am guilty as charged of that myself. And if you were to, I suppose, become overly obsessed with it, you wouldn't do your job or fulfill your mission. But it's important, I think, and I appreciate that you're taking a moment to acknowledge that. Yeah. I. I think more civic engagement is good for all of us. We all need to be more involved in the politics of our country and where we live. And again, I say I'm guilty as charged. I see an opportunity to do better. Yeah, no, I think I think we all do. And uh, I've spent you know most of my life in and around Penn Station, which has been a magnet for uh, those types of you know social problems. By our old office on 35th, there was a meth clinic on the block, and it was pretty awful. Um, you know, that area now with, uh, you know, being rebranded and Vornado's doing a great job turning it into the Penn District is sort of New York's next great neighborhood starting to change, but the ills that plague these people don't change. And uh, one would hope, whether you're Democrat or Republican, that those are the types of policy issues in, in today's divisive political arena, you know, those are among the many, many issues that we're not focusing on while, you know, my congressman, he just got thrown out of Congress was George Santos. So in effect, where I live, we had no representative uh, at all, no representation and won't until there's an election uh, early next year. Um, so, okay, uh, I, I, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about that. And I do think those early experiences, as you said, you know, they really do shape you and stay with you forever. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. And I think it's also taking a moment which conversations like this afford us just to reflect yeah yeah no and and helps us do our actual jobs whether it's at home as parents or a spouse or at work a little bit better let's get back to business margaret you then make a transition and work for a great company um siebel systems which was uh part of the oracle family uh, and that was sort of a move away from promoting your native land of Ireland, which you did in a number of contexts early in your career, and was a movement into product marketing and strategy. Talk about that evolution and the jump that you made, because uh, you had a pretty good run there as well, about six years. That's right. And I tend to do that. I tend to stay a number of years at an organization, in part because I believe you need to understand the soul of the organization and you need to be patient to deliver the outcomes that you're brought on board to deliver. 
Siebel Systems was the originator of CRM or Customer Relationship Management Technology. And I joined Siebel out of my MBA. It was a wonderful company, very different orientation to where I come from. So I went from working in various instances for the Irish government, which was very mission driven and very holistic in its interpretation of its impact to a company that was very sales driven and very growth and very, very commercial. And sales was the center of gravity of that organization. And I learned to appreciate the importance of sales and the importance of aligning everything to one goal. Everything moved in the service of sales. I had marketing roles there across a number of functions, most notably product marketing, which is a really interesting discipline. That's the art of understanding a customer's requirements from a software and working with your engineering colleagues to convert those requirements into product features and functions, and then marketing them with the storytelling in a way that appeals to your market. So tour of duty in that company through various functions from product marketing to customer strategy, to running the user group and customer user week and all the rest. And again, the takeaway there was the centrality of growth and the need to have sales to have a sustainable business, the demands of the public markets and Wall Street and quarterly earnings. That was a new learning for me. Also, one of the values, I always come back to values, Matt. And one of the values that struck me and resonated deeply of Siebel Systems was what was termed a bias for action. And that's another value I take with me. We can all spend a lot of time talking about subject matter and debating and philosophizing. But in the end of the day, you have to do. And I think execution for brands and companies is arguably the ultimate differentiator. So that bias for action is something I've taken with me from my days at Siebel. Yeah, no, that's very well said. And in your case, completely true, Margaret. Uh, let's also frame it in a broader context, both what you were doing at Siebel and then your next gig at uh, Gerson uh, Lerman and then your first CMO gig at Velocity. Those were the early days of digital. Mm -hmm. Things were moving very quickly in a very different way. The, how What CRM means today in 2023 relative to what it meant then, a little bit different. Talk about, you know, learning how to navigate that world and honing those digital chops that would become, you know, of far greater importance, I think, than any of us could have imagined, you know, going back to that time frame. Certainly. And the promise of CRM back in the early 2000s was that unified view of the customer that a call center agent or a salesperson or the marketer would have a single view. And of course, that continues to be the promise today that's arguably not delivered, whether it's through AI or other mechanisms. There is a proliferation of channels. There's a proliferation of opportunities to engage with the customer. And if anything, it's become more complex. Personally, how I became more adept at digital was very hands-on. I also believe that marketing is a contact sport. You have to personally do it. So I became 
very active in Twitter when Twitter became uh, a force in marketing. Specifically, I would go to conferences like the ones you would put on, Matt, and I would tweet out like a courtroom reporter. And in that process, I learned how to synthesize to the 140 characters at the time. I also learned to understand how the user or the member on Twitter acted. And that insight from a user perspective made me a better marketer in subsequent roles. Fast forward to today, and I've taken a similar view to LinkedIn. I'm one of the top marketing voices on LinkedIn. And that's because I get my fingers dirty. I go in, I understand the platform. I'm personally a user and believer in that technology. So that's the mindset that I bring to it, that management's important, strategy is vital, but you're doing it in a vacuum if you don't essentially use the technology yourself. And that's um, a view that I, I continue to think is important. As a manager, you can't ask your team members to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. And, and that notion of getting your hands dirty that's been part of what you've been doing for a long period of time, you know, going back to when you were hosting, you know, CMO salons, you know, a dozen some odd years ago, or as the host of how CMOs commit uh, your podcast, talk about, you know, that really not just talking about it, but living it and doing it. Yes. I think it comes back to the desire to build community. Funny enough, your insight around delving deep to your genesis and your origin story and what you bring with you. Today, I, on behalf of Siegel and Gale, host How CMOs Commit, which is a podcast that is comprised of panels of CMOs where we talk about the issues that matter. And that podcast really had significant growth and audience during the pandemic because people were looking for opportunities to convene and have meaningful conversations. And of course, geography became irrelevant with that uh, mechanism. And today I do that podcast, but I also host many roundtables with CMOs in person. And I believe, notwithstanding the earlier part of our discussion around the importance of digital, I think meeting people face to face is very important. The human connection, human touch, breaking bread together breaks down barriers. So a big part of what I believe in and I do is creating environments or contexts, be they digital or in person, for folks to get together, take down the barriers, create safe spaces for people to learn from each other. And I believe my peers who are CMOs at some of the world's top brands they are so busy in the doing of the day job, they don't always have the opportunity to get together with peers. As you know so well, it can be a very lonely job and a job that requires you to have expertise in so many domains and to answer such a broad set of questions just to be able to get together with others, builds community. And from a business standpoint, back to the sales, I've proven over the decade at Siegel and Gale that if you create environments where trust is generated, 
people will call you when they have a need. And that's all we can ask of marketing in any in any product area. Marketing makes the phones ring. Ultimately, it's the product or it's the service that wins on the day. And I see my job as making the phones ring or said perhaps in more marketing vernacular, making sure we are discoverable when a client has a need for a branding service. And a lot of that is done through community. Some of it's in the public domain, as you see through LinkedIn, a lot of it's in the private domain, creating these round tables where people have the freedom to speak openly and learn from each other. And what we're doing at Siegel and Gale is creating the platform. I'm facilitating the conversation. Often I have colleagues who have expertise to bring to it, but it's much more human than that. It's giving people a shared experience. Well, whether you call it community or call it connection, uh, lots of different ways to sort of say the same thing. Uh, I love what you're doing out there because you're not just talking it, but you're doing it and you're a practitioner. And especially today in this era, you know, I'm a big advocate of all the technology driven tools. You know, we're doing this right now via Zoom. So there's a utilitarian function that is fulfilled, you know, through this technology. But it's not the same as when we were together recently in, I guess it was early October um, at, uh, where was it, a TikTok's office for the Marketing Society, you know, New York, you know, shindig where you and I, you know, and I don't even think we had a chance to speak, right? I had to go on stage really and be on and off and, you know, get out of there, but we saw each other and yes. we got to spend a little, and you look, you can look someone in the eye and this medium, again, utilitarian, but you can't really look somebody in the eye in the same way and build a relationship. And that's what you've really been able to do as a hallmark of your career and a hallmark of your you know, wildly successful tenure at Siegel and Gale is build those relationships so that when someone does have a need or when there's an opportunity, they're going to call you. That's the hope. Yeah. And Matt, I appreciate your acknowledging that. That's certainly been the intention. And I think what you've said so beautifully is the Zooms of the world, they have their purpose, but they lend themselves to transactional behaviors jump on a call, even the vocabulary we use around our experiences through digital, we click, we jump on calls, um, we search, versus when we're in person, we have a conversation. We, the as I mentioned, we invoke so many more of our senses, just that touch, the handshake, the humanity in that, I believe, builds relationships. So these capabilities can be complementary, but the risk with limiting our impact to digital is that we try to confuse activity with impact. And we shoot for productivity versus true impact. And we're all, I catch myself from time to time too, that's a risk we all bear. Whereas if we can be patient, uh, we can have more impact in person. And I heard your wonderful interview with John Haggerty, who talked about the importance of taking time. And these things take time and tools confuse us or delude us or with the idea that everything is instant. Well, that's not how humans are engineered. We have to build trust. 
And the prize is greater, as you've identified, when you have those long-term relationships. So that's in, but it doesn't happen, Matt, automatically. You have to be very intentional about it. You have to plan those gatherings. As you've done with your programming, I had the privilege of presenting at Advertising Week. That takes work. And I think when programming is done really well, it can set you apart. Yeah, well, th thank you for saying that. And I think we, we see things quite similarly. You know, one of my big concerns, and this gets into an area where you have to be careful not to date yourself. You know, my next birthday, I'll be 60. So I have of a different generation. Our industry is dominated, as it should be, by people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. And, and very purposefully, um, you know, Lance and Ruth, who have been with me forever, Lance in particular, over 20 years, you know, I, I knew that it was not time for me to continue to play the same role that I had played historically with Advertising Week and have enough gray hair to be a chairman now. And, and I felt very strongly that the business should be led by people in, in Lance and Ruth's case, they're almost the same age, early 40s. And, and so I, I wanna be careful not to sound like, you know, of a generation that's gone by, but I absolutely believe that uh, the consistent answer that you'll get from younger people in particular in response to the work from home versus office business, but I'm on Zoom calls all day, I'm, you know, I'm, Yes, no one's questioning that you can keep yourself busy and be moving forward. I'll use your word, Margaret, transactionally. You can move things forward. But if I go back and look at my some 40 some odd years in the workplace, most of the best stuff that has happened was the unplanned, where it's serendipity because you're in the room, because you're in between. You know, I had a, a, a podcast. Um, before you this morning and it ended a little earlier than i thought and i ended up having you know an extra 10 minutes and in that 10 minutes i was able to do something and talk to someone who i had not spoken to the unplanned and i worry about young people and understanding the value and the impact of the in-person which i think is coming back around but the unplanned not just the scheduled Google Meet or Teams or Zoom or whatever platform, you know, he or she might be on. Yeah, I'd love to react to that with two thoughts. The first is, I absolutely believe what you've said in terms of we all have an expiration date. And recognizing your own expiration date is really important. And knowing when it's time to create space for others I believe in that and I applaud what you've done in terms of putting your mouth where where your words are, as it were, you know, acting on that belief. I think that's absolutely on point. Second thing is to say at your event this year, actually, I, too, went really deep in young people. I hosted a panel called Getting Insights from Gen Z, and I brought four Gen Zers on stage with their parents who are CMOs. And one of those Gen Z was my son. And normally I host and facilitate the panel. I went on, I introduced the panel, and I essentially passed the mic to him to moderate the conversation with his peers, the Gen Zers. 
And then they gave us nicely some time at the end to come back and react to what we learned from them. So I have deep passion around hearing the views of Gen Z. And I came away from that with a lot of hope. These young people are more sophisticated than sometimes we give them credit for. A number of the insights included the realization that, yes, we're on TikTok all the time, but we also look at billboards. We also talk to each other to get referrals when buying products and services. There's also this wisdom they have that perhaps we did not, that people are unique and brands need to address them as unique buyers. And super interesting, the insight that brands don't need to talk to them in a very gendered way. They have a much more fluid understanding of gender than the era that you and I grew up with and all the challenges that that afforded, particularly women in the workforce. So absolutely aligned with you that creating forums to listen to young people can be very instructive for people at every age. Yeah, and I love that optimism. And I, I share that uh, no matter how uh, half empty the glass may look in our world on a given day, we have to find that optimism and find a way to look at the glass as half full. And, and I love that about you also. So I, I want to spend some time talking about Siegel and Gale because it's such an iconic, important firm in the business. Uh, what I don't know, Margaret, is how you got there. So I'd love to start with that sort of origin story, if you will. Well, my personal story is I was introduced to the agency by the former CMO. She, in her wisdom, I've got to respect the wisdom of people who do matchmaking. Um, she assumed correctly that I would connect with the two CEOs, one of whom is a creative, the other is strategy. And I've been there a decade. I like to agree with your assumption that we do really interesting work. Essentially, we're a brand strategy, design and experience firm. And the agency has been around for over 50 years. Alan Siegel, who's a luminary in branding, had the operating philosophy that simple is smart. And he began by looking at documentation and seeing opportunity as a trained attorney to simplify documents. And that ballooned into simplifying brand experiences, brand identity, brand expression in vocabulary and in, in all its facets and research. And now we are a full service branding firm um, owned by Omnicom, working for some of the most interesting brands around the world. And my role, as I often say, has, is simple, actually. My job is to generate pride, to make sure my colleagues are proud of Siegel and Gale and our work, to make sure our clients are proud to work with us, to make sure anyone I invite into events or other programming has a sense of pride by association. Because I believe if I do that work well, together with my team, great outcomes will flow from that. Um, so I keep it very simple in terms of my mission. Uh, brilliant colleagues who embrace plain language, who embrace getting to the essence of an issue and stripping away that which is not needed. But it's very important to appreciate that it's not reductive work. It's around identifying simplicity as those brand experiences and expressions and strategies that are at the intersection of clarity and surprise. 
So the experiences have to be clear, but if it, there's no surprise, then they run the risk of being dull. So this art of being able to come to the essence of a brand and help a brand express that, that will generate positive commercial outcomes is an extraordinary gift. And my colleagues in all of their different disciplines bring that to our client work every day. So a big part of your success there is building that connection between brand marketing and ultimately the bottom line. And you're doing that against a backdrop where the tenure of the average CMO is increasingly short. Every time I hear a stat from the ANA or the WFA about the average tenure of the CMO, it gets shorter and shorter. Uh, and we've also got the rise of tech-driven, uh, in part, procurement, which cuts often against the value and impact of brand and brand marketing. Talk about building the business at Siegel and Gale and the great work you've been doing for you know, Fortune 100 clients all around the world against a backdrop where the tide can be rowing a little bit against you. Yes, it's tricky. And I think a couple of drivers of our business, one of them is mergers, acquisitions, and splits or divestitures. So when a brand essentially has that kind of combination, there's a need for a new story, a new identity, and potentially new experiences for all the stakeholders. So that's a key driver. Another driver is, funnily enough, this movement of CMOs. So a CMO arrives somewhere and arguably accepted the role because their ambition for the brand is greater than its current state. So that's great for us because they need a new brand, a new brand experience. So the mobility of CMOs is actually a boon for Siegel and Gale, particularly when we do work in one enterprise, we get called to do it in subsequent uh, careers that our clients may have. I also think there's a, change in branding. There was a time early in our careers where brands were about words and pictures. It was the logo and it was the verbal expression. Well, there is a growing sophistication now among enlightened companies that brand is about the experience. And we too have developed our capabilities to help clients not just articulate an elegant strategy, come up with beautiful visual and verbal expression, but to bring that to life through the employee experience and the customer experience. So the evolution of branding, we've kept pace with that, arguably led that, and enlightened CMOs who have the power to essentially affect change in their organizations take a much more expansive view of branding. Notwithstanding all of that, there is that tension between performance marketing and brand marketing. I subscribe to the fact that performance marketing performs better when you've built a brand. Yeah. And building a brand requires clear strategy that builds memory structures back to that humanity such that your brand is discoverable when a customer is in market for a solution. And there is very compelling research that says in most categories, 95% of the people are not in market today to buy what you're looking for. So all of this performance marketing and the clicks is counterproductive because people aren't in that mindset. However, if you do brand marketing, that kind of 
communication and experience that generates memory structures and builds emotional connections, when they are in market, they will remember you. And that's a philosophy. I subscribe to it. And I think a lot of the enlightened CMOs are getting there. The most exciting part for me is when I see that transition happening in B2B business models, where I spent much of my earlier career. And to see B2B brands understanding the power of branding, it's not as ubiquitous as I think it will be or should be, but I've seen significant movement in that direction. Yeah, I happen to agree with you completely. And I worry about the prevalence of engineer-led backgrounds and performance marketing backgrounds uh, not always getting the importance of building brands. You know, I think there's a very different mindset of someone who came up as an engineer. And I'm not disparaging that profession. It's absolutely vital, something I'm wildly unqualified, you know, to speak about in any level of detail. Uh, But I think it's a very different orientation, the way you look at the world. And I happen to agree with you and your notion of performance far more effective when you've invested and built the brand. I think you're absolutely right. And it's funny, Matt, one of the most frequent questions I get from CMOs or even CEOs of companies is how do we build our reputation or how do we become more famous? And that's what they're asking for is how do we build a brand? They don't always have that vocabulary. Even large law firms, professional services organizations, there is a recognition that the world is very cluttered and people are cognitively challenged. Consumers, our clients. So if you, coming back to the simplicity, if you create brand experiences, brand expressions that relate to people on a human level, that remove friction from a process, then you are gifting your market, your clients. And I believe they'll pay that back in dividends. And frankly, we study this at Siegel and Gale. In its 10th edition now, we have the world's simplest brands study. And year upon year, consumers, 15,000 of them across nine countries around the world, report that they are willing to spend more, willing to pay more for brands that provide simpler experience. They are also willing to recommend a brand that provides simpler experience. And the kicker for me as a business person first and marketer second is for the period of the study, we look at the stock market performance of the top 10 brands every year in this work. And guess what? They significantly outperform the indices, which is to say, although they may not articulate it as such, the capital markets are also rewarding simpler brands and brands that build essentially that notion of a brand and a relationship as distinct from just transactional. So there is work to be done. And I know you had a wonderful interview with Sophie from the Marketing Society around marketing, marketing, marketing. We're very bad marketers of our own profession, ironically. Yeah, very well said. And uh, Lord knows we struggled for many, many years until Gravity Road came up with great minds think on alike. As a matter of course, we bungled the marketing and advertising for advertising week. So that certainly comment certainly resonates. 
let's talk about the changing landscape of what you've seen during your tenure at Siegel and Gale. You started uh, summer of 2013. We're now knocking on the door of 2024. Many of the subjects that are on the front burner of our stoves today were not even on the back burner. They didn't exist at all. You know, nobody was talking about the impacts of AI in 2013. You know, the whole rise of new genres of the business completely, retail media did not exist in the way that it did uh, does today in 2013. And the rise of data and analytics and, you know, trust means something very different today than it did the old definition of trust. Um, all driven by technology. Talk about the changing landscape of what you've seen, what parts of your job, Margaret, are the same, and what parts are different? Yes. Well, I think how I answer the question is to think about what are the conversations I'm having in the communities I'm convening, because that's been a constant in terms of my methodology to get insight. The big conversations now, I think, are around the tensions the CMOs are trying to navigate. So on the one hand, there's the tension between growth and fulfilling the capital markets and public stock market requirements, the stock price, with the desire to respond to so many more stakeholders. Many of the marketers today even, but a decade ago, were trained under the philosophy of Milton Friedman. Certainly that's the framework I learned when I was in business school. And Milton Friedman's doctrine was, you look after shareholders and everything else takes care of itself. But that's changed because it's not just investors, it's the stakeholders. And that's the tension. We can look after Wall Street but that's not sufficient. We have employees who are demanding us to think about purpose. We have the community and all the demands around the environment and ESG and everything that that affords. We have regulators we're seeing in many categories who are much more active than a decade ago. And, you know, opining on uh, possible mergers, acquisitions, et cetera, that they didn't really take a look at in the past, or even opining on artificial technology and artificial intelligence in ways they didn't opine on social media. So that's that tension they're navigating. There's also a tension, um, which is very visceral, a subset of the larger tension of stakeholder engagement around building a brand for the long term and hitting your quarterly targets. And most marketers, I think in their hearts, want to build a legacy. They want to build a long-term impact, but they are beholding to quarterly earnings. And that's even more acute now than it was when I began these conversations. And I touched on it, but a really important tension is the idea of should a brand exist purely for commercial outcomes? Or what degree is a brand about purpose? And what is essentially the purpose of business? A very meta 
existential question that a lot of brand leaders are asking. And are they too interconnected and are they actually mutually reinforcing? Really interesting example, if you look back over the last few years, Unilever, arguably a brand that really leaned into purpose for many years and was a paragon of articulating their desire, whether it's the Dove campaign or work they're doing around the environment, really leaning into purpose. In fact, the CEO a few years ago held up Hellman's mayonnaise and its brand purpose as being around improving the environment, reducing food waste. Well, not, not long more than a year ago, essentially, that was the view and that was the uh, compass that led a lot of the behaviors at Unilever. Well, guess what? The capital markets came in and said, wait a second, the brand that's telling me that it's about food waste when it should be just about making leftover chicken taste good has lost the plot. That leadership has lost the plot. And the CEO subsequently has been replaced, remains to be seen how much Unilever will continue on that broad-based purpose journey. I tell that as a small story because that's a public example of the conversations that I'm hearing every CMO happen right now, whether it's around societal issues, around diversity, equity, and inclusion, or the environment, or any number of social issues, it's a real tension. And particularly in the United States, and the closer the issue becomes to a political topic, like opining on voting rights in Georgia, or opining on anything that is polarizing, can be really problematic for a lot of brands because if they need to grow, they have to be mass market. But our market is not mass anymore. We're very splintered as a society. So that's a huge difference from the conversations I was having a decade ago. In synthesis, Matt, a decade ago, the conversation was around marketing having a seat at the table marketing being more than party planning, marketing being more than getting the tickets for the brand to go to the ball game or for the calm strategy. Today, that conversation's been had. Marketing's at the table. The table they want to get to increasingly marketers is the boardroom, not just the, the operating table. But having said that, these are the conversations that are happening in the boardrooms and they're big, big, big issues around business in society. And because of the pivotal role of the marketer, which can be articulating the purpose, bringing it to life through communications and experiences, they are dead in the center of that. So really interesting change. Because I'm an optimist, I think marketing has significant power and it comes with responsibility, but it's a very tough role as manifest in the conversations that I'm party to. I love the way you describe that tension and uh, a big part of what you're doing is navigating and managing that tension for your clients. Uh, this was so interesting, Morgan. I really enjoyed this. Let's start to wrap and I'm going to ask you a tough question. You've accomplished a tremendous amount. You're still pretty young. You've got another C-suite gig or two ahead of you. If we could blink you anywhere in the world right now and say you can have any job that you would like, and you don't have to name a specific company if you're uncomfortable doing that, but what would you see for your next gig? 
going forward? What would be your dream gig, Margaret? Wow, that's a luxurious question. And as a you know, an immigrant girl from Ireland, we don't always give ourselves the space to have a luxurious question. So let me think about that. I think at its heart, it's around having impact. So it has to be a road that has mission that transcends commercial outcomes. It also has to involve this idea of legacy and intergenerational transfer of knowledge. I think, while I can't put a title on the role, it involves creating contexts for conversations around the issues that matter with the people who are moving the needle. Uh, that's a fabulous answer. I love that. And to a large degree, you're doing that right now, whether it's with your uh, chair or board hat on at the Marketing Society or what you're doing at Siegel and Gale. And this was an absolute joy. I love that you've maintained your ties to your homeland in Ireland that's still promoting Ireland and travel and you know the, the brand Ireland is still part of the mix for you. I think that's fabulous. And uh, most of all, of all the research are crack great minds team came across i love that notion of that you are indeed living proof of the american dream and i think that often gets lost in the conversation today in this polarized divisive world that we live in uh but this is still a place where you're with some education and i'm glad you talked about that that you know you can dream big and make your own dreams come true and you're doing that for yourself, for your family, for your clients at Siegel and Gale. And uh, this is an absolute joy to have you on Great Minds. So I can't thank you enough for doing this, Margaret. Matt, thank you so much. How generous of you to take the time and do the research and create space for me and for so many guests over the years. Thank you for everything you do for the community. It means a lot. Well, uh, thank you. Know, as thank I say, you. particularly thank to you. someone who's, you know, perhaps a minority in, in the in the industry and You've made it a welcoming place through the platforms you've built. So thank you and keep up the good work. We'll, we'll keep trying to fight the good fight. Thanks, Margaret. Pleasure, Matt.